Section 36 of Curiosities of Literature, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Puck the Commentator Literary forgeries recently have been frequently indulged in, and it is urged that they are of an innocent nature but impostures more easily practised than detected leave their mischief behind to take effect at a distant period and here we have a footnote a remarkable instance is afforded in the present work see the notes of the article in newspapers in volume one detailing one which has spread falsity to an enormous extent throughout our general literature and we go on we have ourselves witnessed versions of Spanish and Portuguese poets, which are passed on their unsuspicious readers without difficulty, but in which no parts of the pretended originals can be traced, and to the present hour, whatever antiquaries may affirm, the poems of Chatterton and Assyan are veiled in mystery. And here we have two more footnotes. The first, the pretended antique manuscripts preserved among the Chatterton papers in the British Museum, as well as the facsimile of the Yellow Roll, published in the Cambridge edition of Chatterton's works, are, however, so totally unlike the writing of the era to which they purport to belong, that no doubt need be entertained as to their falsity. And the second. They are, however, so far determined by the fragments of Gaelic originals, since published by Scottish antiquaries, that the amplifications of Macpherson can be detected. And we go on. If we possessed the secret history of the literary life of George Stevens, it would display an unparalleled series of arch deception and malicious ingenuity. He has been happily characterised by Gifford as the puck of commentators. Stevens is a creature so spotted over with literary forgeries and adulterations that any remarkable one around the time he flourished may be attributed to him. There were the habits of a depraved mind, and there was a darkness in his character many shades deeper than belonged to Puck. Even in the playfulness of his invention there was usually a turn of personal malignity, and the real object was not so much to raise a laugh as to grin horribly a ghastly smile on the individual. It is more than rumoured that he carried his ingenious malignity into the privacies of domestic life, and it is to be regretted that Mr. Nichols, who might have furnished much secret history of this extraordinary literary forger, has from delicacy mutilated his collective vigour. George Stevens usually commenced his operations by opening some pretended discovery in the evening papers, which were then of a more literary cast than they are at present. The St. James's Chronicle, the General Evening Post, or the Whitehall, were they not dead in body and in spirit, would now bear witness to his successful efforts. The late Mr. Boswell told me that Stevens frequently wrote notes on Shakespeare purposely to mislead or entrap Malone, and obtained for himself an easy triumph in the next edition. Stevens loved to assist the credulous in getting up for them some strange new thing, dancing them about with a will-o'-the-wisp, now alarming them by a shriek of laughter, and now like a grinning pig-wigging, sinking them chin-deep into a quagmire. Once he presented them with a fictitious portrait of Shakespeare, and when the Brotherhood were sufficiently divided in their opinions, he pounced upon them with a demonstration that every portrait of Shakespeare partook of the same doubtful authority. Stevens usually assumed a nom de guerre of Collins, a pseudo-commentator, and sometimes of Amner, who was discovered to be an obscure Puritanic minister who never read text or notes of a playwright, whenever he explored into a thousand notable secrets with which he has polluted the pages of Shakespeare. The marvellous narrative of the Upas tree of Java, which Darwin adopted in his plan of enlisting imagination under the banner of science, appears to have been another forgery which amused our puck. It was first given in the London magazine as an extract from a Dutch traveller, but the extract was never discovered in the original author, and the effluvia of this noxious tree, 
which through a district of 12 or 14 miles had killed all vegetation and had spread the skeletons of men and animals, affording a scene of melancholy beyond what poets have described or painted delineated, is perfectly chimerical. A splendid flim-flam. When Dr. Birkenhout was busied in writing, without much knowledge or skill, a history of our English authors, Stevens allowed the good man to insert a choice letter by George Peel, giving an account of a merry meeting at the Globe, wherein Shakespeare said Ben Jonson and Nedaline are admirably made to perform their respective parts. As the nature of the biographical literary required authorities, Stevens ingeniously added, whence I copied this letter I do not recollect. However, we well know it came from the theatrical mirror, where he had first deposited the precious original, to which he had unguardedly ventured to affix the date of 1600. Unluckily, Peel was discovered to have died two years before he wrote his own letter. The date is adroitly dropped in Birkenhout. Stevens did not wish to refer to his original, which I have often seen quoted as authority. One of these numerous forgeries of our puck appears in an article in Isaac Reed's catalogue, article 8708. The Book of Soldan, containing strange matters touching his life and death and the ways of his course, in two parts, with this marginal note by Reed. The foregoing was written by George Stevens, from whom I received it. It was composed merely to impose on a literary friend, and had its effect. For he was so far deceived as to its authenticity that he gave implicit credit to it, and put down the person's name in whose possession the original books were supposed to be. One of the sort of inventions which I attribute to Stevens has been got up with a deal of romantic effect to embellish the poetical life of Milton, and unquestionably must have sadly perplexed his last matter-of-fact editor, who is not a man to comprehend a flim-flam, for he has sanctioned the whole fiction by preserving it in his biographical narrative. The first impulse of Milton to travel in Italy is ascribed to the circumstance of his having been found asleep at the foot of a tree in the vicinity of Cambridge, when two foreign ladies, attracted by the loveliness of the youthful poet, alighted from their carriage and having admired him for some time as they imagined unperceived, the youngest, who was very beautiful, drew a pencil from her pocket and having written some lines, put the paper with a trembling hand into his own. But it seems, for something was to account for how the youth could have been aware of these minute particulars unless he had been dreaming them, that the ladies had been observed at a distance by some friends of Milton, and they explained to him the whole silent adventure. Milton, on opening the paper, read four verses from Guarini, addressed to those human stars, his own eyes. On this romantic adventure, Milton set off for Italy, to discover the fair incognita to which undiscovered lady, we are told, we stand indebted for the most impassioned touches in the paradise lost. We know how Milton passed his time in Italy, with Dati and Gardi and Frescobaldi and other literary friends amidst its academies, and often busied in book collecting. Had Milton's tour in Italy been an adventure of knight-errantry to discover a lady whom he had never seen, at least he had not the merit of going out of the direct road to Florence and Rome, nor of having once alluded to this Don de Sanspensis in his letters or inquiries among his friends, who would have thought themselves fortunate to have introduced so poetical an adventure in the numerous canzoni they showered on our youthful poet. This historiette, scarcely fitted for a novel, first appeared where generally Stephen's literary amusements were carried on, the General Evening Post, or the St. James's Chronicle. And Mr. Todd, in the improved edition of Milton's life, obtained this spurious original, where the reader may find it. But the more curious part of the story remains to be told. Mr. Todd proceeds. The proceedingly highly coloured relation, however, is not singular. My friend Mr. Walker points out to me a counterpart in the extract from the preface to Poissy de Marguerite Eleanor Clotilde depuis Madame de Seville, poet François de Quinze siècle, Paris, 1803. 
and true enough we find among the family traditions of the same clotilde that justine de levy great-grandmother of this unknown poetess of the fifteenth century walking in a forest witnessed the same beautiful spectacle which the italian unknown had at cambridge never was such an impression to be effaced and she could not avoid leaving her tablets by the side of the beautiful sleeper declaring her passion in her tablets by four italian verses the very number our milton had meted out to him oh these four verses they are as fatal in their number as the date of peel's letter proved to george stevens something still escapes in the most ingenious fabrication which serves to decompose the materials it is well that our voracious historian dropped all mention of guarini else that would have given that coupe de grasse a fatal anachronism however his invention supplied him with more originality than the adoption of this story and the four verses would lead us to infer he tells us how petrarch was jealous of the genius of his clotilde's grandmother and has even pointed out a sonnet which among the traditions of the family was addressed to her he narrates that the gentleman when he fairly awoke and had read the four verses set off for italy which he ran over until he found justine and justine found him at a tournament at medina this parallel adventure disconcerted our two grave english critics they find a tale which they wisely judge improbable and because they discover the tale copied they conclude that it is not singular this knot of perplexity is however easily cut through if we substitute which we are fully justified in for poet de quinze siècles de dix-neuf siècles the poissies of clotilde are as genuine a fabrication as chatterton's subject to the same objections having many ideas and expressions which were unknown in the language at the time they are pretended to have been composed and exhibiting many imitations of voltaire and other poets the present story of the four Italian verses in the beautiful sleeper would be quite sufficient evidence of the authenticity of the family traditions of Clotilde depuis Madame de Seville, and also of Monsieur de Seville himself, a pretended editor who was said to have found by mere accident the precious manuscript. And while he was copying from the press in 1793, these pretty poems, for such they are, of his grand-tante, were shot in the reign of terror, and so completely expired that no one could ever trace his existence. The real editor, who we must presume to be the poet, published them in 1803. Such, then, is the history of a literary forgery. A puck composes a short romantic adventure, which is quietly thrown out to the world in a newspaper or a magazine. Some collector, such as the late Mr. Bindley, who procured for Mr. Todd his original, as idle at least as he is curious, houses the forlorn fiction, and it enters into literary history. A French Chatterton picks up the obscure tale, and, behold, astonishes the literary inquirers of the very country hence the imposture sprung. But the four Italian verses in The Sleeping Youth, oh, Monsieur Vanderberg, for that gentleman is the ostensible editor of Clotilde's Poissies of the 15th century. Some ingenious persons are unlucky in this world. Perhaps one day we may yet discover that this romantic adventure of Milton and Justine de Lévy is not so original as it seems. It may lie hid in the Austria of Durf, or some of the long romances of the Scuderies, whence the English and the French Chattertons may have drawn it. To such literary inventions we say with Swift, Such are your tricks, that since you hatch, pray your own chicks. Will it be credited that for the enjoyment of a temporary piece of malice, Stevens would even risk his own reputation as a poetical critic? Yet this he ventured by throwing out of his edition the poems of Shakespeare with a remarkable hypercriticism that the strongest act of Parliament that could be framed would fail to compel readers into their service. Not only he denounced the sonnets of Shakespeare, but the sonnet itself with an absurd question. What has truth or nature to do with sonnets? 
The secret history of this unwarrantable mutilation of a great author by his editor was, as I was informed by the late Mr. Boswell, merely done to spite his rival commentator Malone, who had taken extraordinary pains in their elucidation. Stevens himself had formally reprinted them, but when Malone from these sonnets claimed for himself one ivy-leaf of a commentator's pride, behold, Stevens in a rage would annihilate even Shakespeare himself, that he might gain a triumph over Malone. In the same spirit, but with more caustic pleasantry, he opened a controversy with Malone respecting Shakespeare's wife. It seems that the poet had forgotten to mention his wife in his copious will, and his recollection of Mrs. Shakespeare seems to mark the slightness of his regard, for he only introduced by an interlineation a legacy to her out of his second best bed with the furniture, and nothing more. Malone naturally inferred that the poet had forgot her, and so recollected her as more strongly to mark how little he esteemed her. He had already, as is vulgarly expressed, cut her off not indeed with a shilling, but with an old bed. And here we have a footnote. Mr. Charles Knight, in his edition of Shakespeare, first clearly pointed out the true nature of the bequest. The great poet's estates, with the exception of the copyhold tenement expressly mentioned in his will, were freehold. His wife was entitled to dower, or a life interest of one-third of the proceeds arising from the lands or tenements the property of Shakespeare, and which were of considerable value. She was thus amply provided for by the clear and undeniable operation of the law of England. Mr. Halliwell has further proved that such bequests were the constant modes of showing regard to such relatives as were well provided for by the usual legal course of events. And he adds, So far from this bequest being one of slight importance and exhibiting small esteem, it was the usual mode of expressing a mark of great affection. Let me go on. All this seems judicious, till Stevens asserts the conjugal affection of the bard tells us that the poet, having, when in health, provided for her by settlement, or knowing that her father had already done so, circumstances entirely conjectural, he bequeathed to her at his death not merely an old piece of furniture, but perhaps, as a mark of peculiar tenderness, the very bed that on his bridal night received him to the arms of Belvedere. Stephen's severity of satire marked the deep malevolence of his heart, and Murphy has strongly portrayed him in his address to the malevoly. Such another puck was Horace Walpole. The King of Prussia's letter to Rousseau, and the memorial, pretended to have been signed by noblemen and gentlemen, were fabrications, as he confesses, only to make mischief. It well became him, whose happier invention, the castle of Otranto, was brought forward in the guise of forgery, so unfeelingly to have reprobated the innocent inventions of a Chatterton. We have Pucks busied among our contemporaries. Whoever shall discover their history will find it copious, though intricate. The malignity at least will exceed tenfold the merriment. End of section 36